The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Detective Bowden was uh, talking to a couple of the firemen, you know, uh, the on-scene fire commander, I should say, about, you know, what, you know, what's making you think this is suspicious, what's going on. So, I mean, from the get-go, we knew it wasn't, you know, uh, we didn't know it was a homicide, but we knew also it wasn't, you know, the firemen were giving us information that didn't imply like, oh, you know, they had a gas leak and then this fire just started, mm-hmm. you know, something along that. We kind of, we knew there was more, there was some very suspicious about the whole thing. Well, then I know uh, Detective Bowden was starting to enter, you know, was wanting uh, the gentleman from the bank, which I can't remember. David Haynes? Yeah, I don't remember. I remember getting his name at the time, yeah. you know, after the fire department arrived and everything. And everything was settling down before the detective got there for the report. I remember getting like his name, date of birth and address and everything. I just, the thing that sticks out in my mind was that, uh, the victim, she worked at the same bank he worked at. And that's the main thing that stuck out in my mind, that sticks out in my mind right now. Um, but I remember the detective was talking to him and then, uh, uh, I kind of, I walked around the perimeter to check because by then they had enough volunteer firefighters and uh, all the volunteers that for ESDA and things like that were there set, had set up, you know, the traffic for traffic control and crowd control and everything. So we, me as a, you know, just a road cop, just a, you know, beat officer, I wasn't needed anymore. And, you know, dispatch still gets calls from other people that I have, you know, we have to go handle. So I was walking back to my police car, you know, to leave. And I remember our Lieutenant pulled up and was kind of like, Hey, what's going on? And I said, well, I go, you know, this lady didn't show up to work. A coworker came to check on her and we got here for a well-being check. Well, ends up the, the house is on fire now. And there's, the victim and her daughters and they're deceased and I go and they're still fighting the fire and he said oh okay and I go we you know and I was explaining where you know the roads was blocked off and the perimeter and everything to keep people away and he said okay and then I remember he (laughs) reprimanded me because my uniform was dirty and I wasn't wearing my hat and I had on yeah are you effing kidding me I'm sorry no, and I remember that 
sticks out. I mean, it's weird how things you remember things over the years, but I just remember looking at them and like, oh, okay, and you know, I'll do better, sir. And oh my gosh, I, yeah. And then I remember he left, and then I returned to my car and I cleared from the call. And uh, after I cleared from the call, I don't really remember much else that day. Um, then I remember. Uh, you know, like the detectives, uh, it's, I, I know it's a small police department, but it's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, I just walk in the detective's office and say, Hey, tell me, you know, about this homicide you're investigating. Give me the details. It's not like that. I mean, the detectives kind of keep things close to themselves when they're investigating mm-hmm. crime. I mean, if it's something like a, a burglary or, uh, you know, some other kind of misdemeanor crime or some kind of felony, like you're the officer that took the initial call or, or you know, did some follow-up on it, and you go in and talk to the detective, and you say, hey, you know, I interviewed these couple of people, so I sent you copies of the reports. What do you think? And they'll tell you, well, you know, here, I think, you know, we don't have enough yet for a warrant. You know, they'll talk to you about things like that. But on a homicide, they they don't just talk about it. It's kind of, they keep it to themselves while they're investigating it. Sure. But uh, I know the fire department over the, I don't remember the time frame, but over the next few days or weeks, I remember we found out that the fire department, you know, their uh, analysis testing had determined that there's an accelerant used. And I don't remember if it was gasoline, kerosene or what. I just remember they said that there had been an accelerant uh, dumped on the bodies and in the area where the bodies, you know, were found, and that's where the fire had started. Um, I remember uh, I, Dave Bears was assigned. He was a detect sergeant of detectives, and he was assigned as the lead investigator for it. Um, I do. I remember Mike Elam was the chief of police, and I remember him, you know, talking to Dave and son, and Marty Bowden. And telling them, you know, hey, you know, whatever resources you need or personnel you need to investigate this, you tell me and I'll make it happen. I'll get it for you. So, I mean, it was like, I mean, once the ball got, once we realized, okay, this is a homicide, it, you know, it was everything. They were doing everything they could to investigate this. And I know, like, uh, the DNA evidence was well known back then, uh, was common knowledge. The only thing was the technology of, um, actually getting the analysis, uh, you know, the testing done. There wasn't a lot of places that had certified credentialed individuals to do analysis for, you know, crimes for, to be able to testify in court. And I know, I remember also back then, like, now it doesn't take very much, you know, bodily fluids or hair or skin sample to get a, a DNA analysis from. But uh, back then, you had to have a larger sample. Um, so I know it was it was taking time for, you know, the autopsy and then, you know, also the, the chemical analysis from the accelerants that identified that and to get all those documents. But I remember the detectives had already started interviewing multiple people, um, you know, friends or associates of hers, or I, if I remember right, 
I can't remember if she was divorced from her husband or if they were separated, but I do remember like them interviewing, you know, her husband or ex-husband, if that was the case. And I remember that that all started like within days, uh, you know, of their, of their deaths. Um, but I, to me, what really sticks out in my mind, it was, I don't remember the date, but it was sometime that spring, because this was in January when they were murdered. And it was sometime that spring, maybe like March, April time frame. I just remember by then I was um, working nights. I was on night shift and I wasn't on days no longer. And I remember it being like nice during the day, kind of nice, but then cold at night. Um, but I remember then uh, the sheriff's department had a case where Donald Bull had uh, had sexually assaulted a woman at the old Hewlett Park, uh, which is, I don't know, maybe about a half mile, mile south of Canton. And um, it's no longer a park now. It's just a big cornfield. The park district sold it. But if I don't remember all the details of that because the the sheriff's department, since that was in the county, they investigated it. But I remember, uh, you know, just hearing things that uh, Donald Bull had uh, like beaten this woman up and had choked her to where she was unconscious. And uh, she was somehow able to get away from him. And then, you know, called the police and they were in, and she knew who he was. So he ended up getting arrested for that sexual assault. And then based on, uh, based on the evidence that was collected from that, the, you know, the DNA analysis or the semen and DNA analysis, um, our detectives had, uh, obtained a search warrant to get that, the results of that and then submitted them for the Donna um, murder, Donna and Justine murder, to see if it matched. And from what I remember at the time, um, if I remember right, uh, from Donna, the victim, they had recovered in the autopsy, had recovered semen from inside her. So, and it was, you know, viable where they could test it and they were able to match that DNA up with uh, Donald Bull's uh, DNA. And if I, I, I don't remember what it was, but where Donald Bull was living, I know they had searched his residence and they recovered some jewelry that they believed was Donna's. But I remember there were, the thing that sticks out in my mind, there was one piece of, of jewelry that was like a family heirloom or something that was really important to her that her family and ex-husband and everybody was able to clearly identify, yes, that's hers. And that was found at, uh, at Donald Bull's residence where he had been living at, you know, back at the time when they'd been murdered. Um, but really those, I mean, like I said, I didn't have anything to do with the investigation. I mean, I was just a patrol officer back then, only been there for like two and a half, three years. So I had limited involvement in it, but 
it, I mean, like that, it's always stuck out in my mind. One, I mean, it's bad enough when an adult gets, you know, murdered, but when a little, you know, a little child, you know, is murdered that way, it always just sticks in your mind. And, you know, over the years, I remember, uh, thinking back, I remember like Dave Ayers and Marty Boten in the detective's office, they had a, uh, like a little picture. I don't know. They got from one of the family members of Donna and Justine, you know, that they had there on the bulletin board. And I remember this was at the old station down on Spruce Street. And I remember there in the detective's office on that bulletin board up in the corner. I mean, that picture was there during the investigation and it was up there, you know, for several years afterwards too. So. But I don't know. That's pretty much all I remember of it. That's a lot. That's a lot of details, Rusty. That's really good. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and and a lot. I mean, obviously, I, we've uh, been reading the court documents and all that, and you know, everything you said lines up um, with the what we've been reading um, as far as. But the scene. I mean, that must have been horrible. And then your lieutenant shows up and. You're called on to do things like what you did. And as you're walking me through it, I'm thinking about the trauma that you must have experienced. And then, you know, to have your superior be like, your your suit's dirty. It's like, no. I mean, see, hopefully things have changed since then, but I don't know. That yeah, I. It, it was a, you know, I guess, what do they call it? A different breed of policeman back then yeah i just i I, it's weird that after all these years that sticks out in my head because i remember it you know being cold and then you know with the firefighters spraying the water the mist coming off and you know throwing my hat in the car and putting on the stocking cap and then i put on that helmet you know to help marty Boten and just assist him because he he was the detective i was basically just the guy holding the flashlight and helping carry equipment and I, I just, you know, then to get reprimanded, I just remember looking at him like, oh, okay, sir. Yep, I'll do better next time, you know. Mm. And it just, all these years, it just stuck in one of those things that sticks in your mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate the work that you did all those years because I know that it's not easy. And even today, it's harder because, um, you know, police officers are not... Uh, the heroes that they once were, even though, you know, you showed up, you did what you were told to do, you risked your life, you saw horrible things. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Thank you for your service is what I'm trying to say. Um, no, well, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I know I, I can definitely say I probably wasn't the best police officer, but I always tried my best. I mean, I always tried to treat, you know, I always tried to treat people the way I'd want to be treated, you know, mm -hmm. if, if, you know, I was a civilian, you know, dealing with a police officer. I'm sure there's times I failed at that, but I did always try. Yeah. So do you feel that um, with the investigation and the trial, the justice was served? Um, for me, I, uh, you know, Personally and professionally as a police officer, retired police officer, and personally, I uh, witness testimony or witness statements are a good guide 
But when I, anytime I watch anything like a documentary or anything and you find out people going to prison for life or the death penalty and there's no physical evidence to substantiate that, mm-hmm. I always have serious questions and doubts about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case where they, you know, they had the DNA evidence and you know, the way the, the fire was started and then, you know, the him having, you know, some of her personal property in his possession. Um, if I remember right, I, I I might be wrong on this, but I think at the trial, his defense was trying to claim they were dating, which I don't know. They might have been, but um, his, you know, there were some other history of him, you know, physically and sexually abusing other women where he'd been, you know, charged with, you know, sexual assault. So between the, the history, his history towards women and the physical evidence, to me, I'm, I'm hundred percent confident that, you know, the individual who committed the crime was arrested, charged, received a fair trial, and was found guilty. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm confident in that. But, you know, the, there's always people who are going to be naysayers, you know, that it could have been this person, could have been that person. But if the evidence doesn't link that person to it, it's all just speculation. So mm-hmm. my view is, is, you know, the witnesses or people can state what they want, but in my mind, the primary thing is what does the evidence lead to? You know, the physical evidence that can be proven. And the physical evidence definitely shows he was there. And the physical evidence doesn't show anybody else was there. So mm-hmm. that's how I look at it. Yeah. thing I can think of that kind of pops in my head and I'm not even sure about this but if I remember right how they connected uh, Donna and Donna Donald Bull was he if I remember right I think he delivered furniture for a local business and I think he Somehow he obtained a key to the apartment by delivering some furniture to her apartment. And that's, I remember something about they were speculating that he had used this key to, was how he was able to get into the residence without any sign of forced entry, is what I, and I might be wrong about that. Um, but I do remember something about. Uh, him delivering furniture to to her, and that was one of the re- and based on he he had a prior conviction for uh, 
Yeah, it was either, uh, you know, where he badly beaten a woman and, and choked her till she was unconscious or had sexually assaulted a woman and had done that. So once I remember them finding out that he had delivered some furniture to her, he uh, he was on the list of suspects. Because mm-hmm. I, if I remember right, there was like four or five different people that they were looking at, were interviewing and, you know, wanting to collect DNA, you know, something to match the DNA that was recovered from the semen from Donna. And I remember there was like several people there, like four or five, maybe six. And he was one of the ones that, you know, they were interviewing and looking at at the time. But again, I, I didn't have anything to do with that part of it. So I might be wrong on that. Yeah. I just remember though her, he, I remember he was one of the, I mean, I guess you could say suspect, but he was on the the list of people that the detectives, you know, were looking at, right. you know, and wanting to see if, you know, the, his DNA matched with the DNA recovered from Donna and, I remember that, and I remember there was, like, uh, Donald Bull was one of them, and then uh, uh, there was, like, two or three, maybe maybe four other gentlemen. I remember there's like, four or five total people that, by that spring, mm-hmm. I remember by that spring, they were the ones, really, that they are looking at hot and heavy. And then, after Donald Bull, that spring, was arrested for... Uh, Assault. Assaulting down at Hewlett Park and then, you know, strangling or choking her and almost, you know, possibly killing her. I remember he kind of moved to the top of the line then and they were really wanting to, you know, get a sample of his DNA to see if that matched with mm-hmm. the DNA covered from Donna. Right. Was yeah. there a chair? Do you remember a chair on the um, pullout couch or daybed? A chair? Yeah, on top of the bed. I thought I read that somewhere. I don't know. It's just a weird fact that I thought I read. Oh yeah, no. I just I uh, I just remember uh, uh, Donna appeared. Um, she was on her back. It appeared, and her legs were like the ends of her legs. You know, were like hanging over the edge mm-hmm. edge of it. Yeah. Bed. And, uh, uh, and I remember like that, her, her daughter being there in the bed with her. And when I first turned on my flashlight, I was kind of shining around, uh, you know, just the way my mind registered at the time I thought it was a doll mm. and it wasn't until, you know, uh, Marty Bowden started taking pictures then in the flash where it was lighting everything up. And then I was thinking, Oh no, that's, you know, that's the, the little girl. You know, yeah. that, you know, the realization dawned on me. Ugh, at that I can't even imagine. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, I don't remember anything about a chair. I just remember the, the room was burned pretty bad. I mean, it was burned pretty bad. And I remember the victim's remains were, I don't know how, what's a, I don't know, a proper term would be, I guess like I'm roasted. Was that a proper term? That sounds kind of don't it. No, yeah. but it's a, a visually I understand. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that kind of, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you could tell they were humans and, you know, human, but it wasn't like just skeletons. It wasn't like that. No, right. you could tell, you know, these are bodies here. How and, long, do you know how long the fire had been going by time uh, first responders got there? Um, when we pulled up, um, the fire couldn't have been going very long because from the time the, that gentleman that was there from the bank, he said he could see in through the glass by the doors and could see no smoke, no flames, nothing. And he could see into the apartment, but he couldn't see nobody moving around, no movement or nothing. And he went upstairs or to a neighbor's, used the phone. And then when he came back down, he looked in and he said he could see smoke. And I, I don't really, he said he could see smoke and like that there was fire in there. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time we pulled up, the fire was, I mean, it was coming out the door, smoke mm-hmm. and flames was coming out the door. Mm-hmm. So it, it couldn't have been going by the time the fire department got there because the fire department was but there Spruce and First, and this was on, on North First and Spruce, and this was on South First and Railroad. I mean, it couldn't have been more than five, six minutes before the fire department got there. So, I mean, a guesstimation, maybe 10, 12 minutes. You know, as a police officer, that was the, the first homicide, you know, that I'd responded to. Right. You know? So when you were on the uh, police force in Canton, do you do you remember about how many murders there were or homicides in Canton during your time? Uh, let me think back. If I remember, there was five. If I remember mm-hmm. right, yes. Um. I'm trying. I remember there was a, a little girl that was murdered by her uncle. Um, I remember another lady that her she was going through a divorce and her husband was stalking her, and we'd arrested him. Uh, we and the sheriff's department had arrested him two or three times for stalking, and he ended up uh, stabbed her to death. Um, trying to think of the other ones i remember there was uh well there was uh one lady that ended up the county investigated because the um they believe she was murdered in canton but her body was found out in the county and the way the protocol is is where the victim the victim's remains are found that law enforcement jurisdiction has is the primary investigator um trying to think uh, if i remember right there was uh over that like 20 year span there was five homicides yeah so it wasn't a real common occurrence no no yeah no no i mean uh we i can tell you we several people I can think of where they'd either been stabbed multiple times and survived or uh, a couple of people been shot and wounded and survived. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to actual homicides, you know, where someone actually died, you know, from evil intent, 
Yeah, knock on wood, we didn't. We don't have a lot of those around here in Canton. Right. Yeah, so, I know the sheriff's, sheriff's department has had several also, so in the county. Yeah. So what is Canton like? Well, it, I what I would classify it as is kind of a small working class town. Um, a lot of people don't realize that... Um, I think it's like the the county stats are like forty eight or forty nine percent of the county is at or below the poverty level. So we have a lot of uh, low income people. Um, you know, I I think we have a good uh, mix between you know people that are well to do and working class people, mm-hmm. but. For the most part, working on the police department, most of our calls were, you know, domestics between couples or uh, um, fights at the bar, you know, drunk people fighting at the bars. And then over the years, um, I mean, every town has illegal drugs in their town, but it just seemed like over the years that the drug problem has gotten worse and worse and worse. And then, of course, the thefts and the burglaries go skyrocketing, go up and up. And then now it's like that, like you were saying earlier, just the way the public perception of police is, is um, now police departments have a hard time hiring people. So when people retire or go, you know, go find another job or leave the police department, they're having a hard time hiring people so then they're understaffed and still trying to you know investigate drug crimes and irregular thefts and burglaries and but it just seems i would me now my perception now is i mean canton's a good place to raise your kids but you you gotta really be on the ball raising your kids here because i mean it's not like in a big city where you have a lot of crime or drugs that are I don't know, congregated into one area. In Canton, it's kind of like hot spots scattered all over the place. So it's just kind of, you gotta, you know, if you're raising kids here, by the time they're in junior high, you really gotta keep tabs on who your kids are hanging out with and what they're doing and keep their interest into, you know, sports or band or, you know, other activities so that they don't end up you know, getting, getting dragged into that. Yeah, that's a, that's hard. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I know like Donald Bull, he, you know, he has family that live in the area and, you know, I, them folks, you know, they don't, you know, they have nothing to do with this or anything. So, you know, I, hopefully they don't get upset by this either, but, you know, I, I don't mean any disrespect to them folks either, but, you know, the facts are the facts and the truth is the truth. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's, it's a whole sad situation of, uh, you know, one individual, the, the lives that they damaged and 
these two lives he destroyed, you know? Yes. me like when if you're interviewing people and all you have is witnesses statements I, I always take those as you know always in the back of my mind I'm like okay there's their story the suspect story and somewhere in the middle is the truth right and, yeah I totally and, agree with that yeah and it's uh, I always all the cases I work with witness statements I kind of use them as a guide but if I didn't have like some good physical evidence to back it up, mm -hmm. I was always hesitant to, you know, in some cases that's all you have. And if it's, you know, like a misdemeanor or petty offense, and you write them out a ticket and give them those peer and say, okay, you know, you know, dude, I got, you know, I got a supervisor too. I got to do my job and let them fight it out in court. But when it comes to somebody who could be spending their life in jail or being getting like the death penalty. The yeah. idea that somebody could get life in prison or the death penalty all based on witness statements with minimum or no physical evidence, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to me, that just boggles my mind that that happens. That it yeah. So, and that's like with, you know, like with Donald Bull, I mean, to me, I'm pretty confident that the case that the detectives were, you know, the all the detectives working on it got the right person. I mean, they had, what, five, six, if I remember right, four or five, maybe six different possible suspects. And from what I remember, they were all cooperative, or most of them were cooperative. They gave, like, here's my DNA, here's my fingerprints, you know, I'll come in for interviews. And then you had Donald Bull, who didn't want to cooperate at all and then they caught him and uh, he changed his story i don't know how many times and then i'm like okay well bam you here you know shine the spotlight on this dude you know here's the i mean that's like basic 101 investigation right so, but well yeah. there is some question about the dna because um according to the defense donald bull indicated that they had had a physical relationship and also um, I did speak to one of the witnesses that was a friend of uh, Donna and also knew Donnie she's the one who introduced them and actually she did indicate that there was that Donna was interested in Donnie believe it or not oh wow okay then yeah that kind of so that's one of and and you know you were talking about the the death sentence. I I believe that Donald Bull was not a good person. He was a, he did horrible things. But I feel like for me, anyways, when I step back and look at all the information, it makes me wonder. You know, the death penalty in that case to me is questionable because there was there is a to me a shadow of a doubt. And and that was like, you know, shortly thereafter his conviction, the governor was um, basically pardoning a lot of people who were on uh, death row because there were so many problems with 
the state of Illinois death penalty. So, I mean, that's just a, a whole other area of the story um, that comes into play with it. So, uh, you know, that's just... See, yeah, I no, I agree with you. If you're going to put somebody... I mean, you hope and you do the best job you can to, even if you're just locking somebody up for three months, a year, or five years or ten years. But to me, I'm like, if you... If somebody's going to get life in prison or, like you said, the death penalty, you need to be 100% positive with, you know, with the with the physical evidence, the witness statements. I mean, to me, I'm like, when it comes to that point, there is no okay. We might have, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt to convict the person, but we need 100% no doubt if they're going to get life in prison or the death penalty. That's the way I look at it. Oh, my name is Jinra, and I was hoping to speak with Chris about uh, the Donald Bull case. I just had a few questions for him. Okay, I can try to give, I can give him your number. Okay, yeah. He can call you. And may I have your name once more? My name's Christy. Christy? Christy Chester? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm supposed to call him back here shortly. That's what I was asking. Oh, okay. Thank you and so much. Or it's, Donald. It's reg- yeah, it's regarding Donald Bull. Okay. You, I spoke to you briefly yesterday, and yeah. you, you had told me that he was um, he was currently incarcerated. Yeah. Okay. Um, would, he can still call out. Oh, okay. Would you would you happen to know when he'll when he'll be out? He gets out the tenth of this month. Oh, well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, real quick. Hello. Hi. Yes, I'm trying to get in touch with Chris Chester. He's not here right now. I'm his fiance. Oh, hi. Uh, my name's Anne Marie. I'm just following up. I believe you might have talked to Jinra not too long ago about him talking to us about Donald Bull. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just following up because he said when he got out he was going to talk to us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can have him call you. Okay, can you have him call me at this phone number? Yes. Okay. And my name's Anne Marie. Okay. All right. Okay, thank you. Message. All right, thank oh. you. Bye.
Hey, this is uh, Christopher Cheshire. I guess you've been called my my fiance. Uh, she has power to speak for me. I can't get a hold of you any other way. So I guess I'll call you sometime Monday or Tuesday. Uh, will you please let her know what this is all about? Thank you. Hey, Mama. What, well, baby? Did you hang up? No, I'm trying to figure out how. <laughs> well, just hang up and I'll call you back. Mr. Chester? My name is Jinra, and I'm a researcher for an upcoming um, podcast that's about the Donald Bull case. Um, and I was, yeah, I was hoping to know if you were if you were available to talk about it. Okay. Uh, I was I was told that um, by your fiance Christy that you'd be out on the tenth. Yeah. Is it all? Is it all right if I can um, contact her to see when would be a good time for you then? Yeah, because we can set it up even if I had to go, because I might have to go to jail for a few days on a, on a backup case, but either way, yeah, we can set it up then. Okay. All right. What's that, what's that, what's that to do with, like, a for, like, a criminal justice report. Okay. We're just wanting to paint a bigger picture of um, the incident because we only see one picture of it. It's for a, a podcast. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right. All right. Okay. I can understand, but yeah, we can get deeper into it. Yeah, I get out on the turf, and either way, we can set it up then, because if I do have to go back to Chico and set it up through the, to the county where they allow me to do it, you know? Okay. In prison, it's kind of, you know, it's stricter rules, you know? Right. Okay, um, I don't want to use up your time, so I will connect with your fiancé on the 10th. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You have one. He was born by the roadside in a broken down
Spoon River Gothic is a production of Longbird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>